shiver in the dark. It's raining in the park. But meantime, Tim, Tim just told me to focus. I uh, literally, the show's starting. I'm going, you know, I don't really like the way my shirt feels. Uh, welcome to Swing Thoughts. Breathe, everybody. Uh, show 11. Uh, and now featuring, man, we're really excited. Uh, we've been doing the show for a couple months. I have, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I'm glad you did that because I was going to uh, make this big announcement. And then I have sound effects and stuff. So here we go. Uh, we're pleased to announce that uh, the program, which is now uh, 10 podcasts old, has a sponsor. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Swing Thoughts, brought to you by TaylorMade Adidas Golf, the number one driver in golf. Thank you. Yeah, all right, so let's get started. <laughs> yes, it's the man who sold the world. Uh, it's great yeah. to have you with us. Uh, the week before the Masters, very exciting time in golf. I, I think for Canadians and Americans, too, that this time of the year, it's almost like the unofficial kickoff of the season. Oh, yeah. We come out of the snow, the rust falls off, and the tinkly piano music and Jim Nance's dulcet tones just wake us all up. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's as hokey as some guys think it is. I just love that sound and Nance saying, you know, blah, 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 blah. This is the Masters. Uh, what a show we have. Uh, you know, when we first started talking about this last year, we thought of all the guys we could have on the show, people we know and people that are known in the world of golf. One of the first names on the list that we made uh, was this guy that's uh, about to come on. You know, I, 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 you know, you could go Google all the stuff he's done, who he is, uh, and why he's become such a force in the game of golf. Uh, Tim and I have known uh, this gentleman for a long time. I, I don't know when you first met him, but I saw him filling divots at a golf course I was a member of. I went, <laughs> uh, one day that kid's going to be the best teacher in the world. <laughs> um, it's funny because I, being a, like most human beings, self-absorbed and, and thinking only of myself, I, I knew this kid at the, as, at the time and I thought he was a good guy and everything, but it wasn't until later that I saw him on the range at Glen Abbey. I'm like, oh, oh, you're that guy. And by then he'd been uh, making his reputation as a, a golf instructor. Um, let's just get right to it. Hey, Sean Foley, everybody. Sean Foley is here. Hi, guys. How are you? We're great. And thank. I meant what I said. It was uh, one of our things sitting around having coffee last spring at uh, Glen Karen and saying, you know, we would get guys like Sean Foley on the show and and tap into some of the people that we've met over time and, and do. A, we really appreciate you doing this. No, no, my pleasure. Absolutely. How old were you uh, when you were working at the Nash? You were just a kid, right? I was... Uh I was 14. Um, that was the first summer was when I was 14. I what, remember. What year was that, you think? Oh, 1988. Wow. So, so I joined there was, in 1990, uh, and you were working there through the summers. W yeah, that's right. Were you, at that time as a kid, working, you know, Ben Kern, lots of good players around that place, Newton was still alive. Did your, Was your dream then to be a, a professional golfer? Um... I don't know. I kind of probably at that point just wanted to be Ben. I probably just wanted to be Ben Kern. I thought like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even, even to this day, like my dress has been affected by it. Like I'm, I'm always so dialed and so sharp. And I used to just, you know, I, you know, for me, I was really fortunate because kind of how I end up at the national is the, the, the start of the story is that my dad worked for DuPont originally as a chemist 
Uh, and then uh, as a salesman, and then uh, he sold medical products for DuPont to radiologists. So we moved around quite a bit around North America. So we started in Toronto, moved to Delaware, uh, went from Delaware to San Francisco, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Los Angeles, back to Toronto, Toronto to Vancouver. Wow. Vancouver is kind of where it happens, where my dad gets a corporate membership uh, at Shaughnessy with DuPont. Um, to take out clients and what have you. So, I mean, you have these two hotbeds of Canadian golf. You have Shaughnessy and you have the National. The reason they're both hotbeds, one, the courses are obviously amazing and what have you, but you have Jack McLaughlin and you have Ben Kern. And I've always believed in many cases, uh, and it's definitely changed in today's world, um, where head pros don't own the carts or the shop and right. they're struggling just to get by. Um is back in the day, a golf club was as good as its head pro was, and um, or its director. So, I mean, look at, I'm a young kid, um, my dad gets me a junior membership, but there's, if I want to use the junior membership at Shaughnessy, I live in North Vancouver, I have to take the bus there. So, kind of the first part where my dad's kind of testing my passion for the game. So... I'll never forget, it was two summers of waking up at six and taking two-hour bus ride to Shaughnessy and then practicing and playing all day and then coming back home um, from eight to ten. So I pretty much, in that time, I probably memorized every Led Zeppelin, every <laughs> and every Bob Marley and Jimi Hendrix lyric as I sat on the buses rolling through Vancouver learning more than I ever could in the classroom. And... Then my dad was getting, tra- uh, not traded, but he was getting a... Your dad got traded by DuPont. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, he was getting moved back. I have your dad's to- rookie card. It's really cool. <laughs> he was getting moved back to Toronto, and he asked Jack McLaughlin. So basically, most days I would go there, and my intention was to you know play 36 holes, but a lot of times I'd be stuck just sitting on a wire basket watching Jack teaching Brent Franklin and Ray Stewart. Sometimes Oak would be over there, Lori King would be there sometimes. So here I'm this kid. Um, my first lessons that I ever got were from Greg McCatton. So uh, that was in LA. So basically it's really funny how the first person who taught me was pretty much the top of the hierarchy of the golfing machine. So from day one, they were always telling me why. So I always kept searching for why. And then Jack thought I searched for why too much. So he tried to get me to be more feely and more rhythmic. And then, uh, you know, Ben kind of tested, he he knew that I was kind of a spiritual person and a deep person. So he would test me that way. And so, I mean, I was just so fortunate when I ended up at the national, that was my dad asking Jack, you know, what should I do with him now when I take him back to Ontario? Because I want, you know, I want people around him. So Jack called Ben Kern, and then Ben Kern brought us in and interviewed us. And next thing I knew, myself, Brian McCann, Mark Henderson, kind of the who's who of good Canadian golfers for the next five or six years. Um, you know, that's who I was around all day, and I'd be at the back of the range with um, Craig Marseille, uh, you know, rest in peace to the yeah, pro. Yeah. Um, Tom Jackson, 
I mean, Nievik, all those guys. Yeah, Mar- Marty like, Chuck was practicing. I listen. I joined. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, Marty well, Chuck. We, we were all trying to figure out. Danny King was teaching us. I was going to say when I joined in 1990. I, I mentioned this to Marty when we had him on the show. There was about five or six guys. There was Brennan Little. There was Moreland. There was you. There was all these guys, and they were younger than me. But because I didn't have anything to do, anything to do during the day after my job was done, I got the benefit of sort of practicing with really good players and being around those people, including Marseille. And I want to get to Marseille a little bit later because he was a, a very special guy and, and a friend of mine and yours as well I know but one of the things I want to get to because we're going to talk about the mental performance and the mental side of golf but I remember having a conversation with you on the range at Glen Abbey this is years later and you had already established as an instructor and I remember listening to you speak and being a person myself you know like Tim and a lot of people listening been interested in the journey of life and considering things and I thought listening to you talk about golf I thought to myself this guy has, is one of the people you'll meet along the way that considers things. What I mean by that sure. is you, you respond rather than react. And I remember that day on the range thinking, wow, this guy's not only come a long way in his golf evolution, but what an interesting character to be around and what an interesting game to have a character like you in it. Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate that. It has never been anything on purpose. I mean, I just... Uh I just, I guess I've just been trying to become secure with my insecurities since I was 10 years old, and, and I've done so. And, um, yeah, you know, when I was a, you know, when I was a kid, it was like, it was always, uh, you know, I was always, everyone always told me I had the best golf swing, and I was the best on the range, and this, this, and this, and I would go on the course, and um, it would never be as good. And on the course, I would hook it on the range, I would hit it perfect. Now, I've probably at that point when my I had a pretty swing so stylistically um, it was pretty dynamically it was very poor hence the reason that I hooked it so I remember thinking that I, you know I read every mental book and every mental golf book and as I started to get a little bit older uh, the main thing that really helped the main thing that helped me in my life to really see things and to really grow up quickly was you know, I went to an all-black university in Nashville on a golf scholarship. So when you go from Toronto, um, which is kind of the epicenter of, I would say, liberal social ideas and kind of tolerance, sure, there's patches of people who, who, who are misguided, and, and that's unfortunate. But for the most part, it's when I'm in the States and people go, where are you from? I say, Canada. I've been to Toronto. Everyone's so kind. That happens all the time. Whether it's real or not, people are kind. And it's a great thing to be perceived as, though. Oh, 100%. 100%. People from you know? someplace else go, oh, it, the people are so great there. And meanwhile, you got cut off and someone sure. beat you up. But you go from here, sort of this uh, so melting pot to of Nashville. Nashville. Yeah, to yeah. Tennessee. Right. So, you know, I mean... I probably, I knew within the first year that if I could handle it, that nothing I would ever go through in my life would be difficult again. And that's been true. Um, obviously, getting to the point I've got to in my career, um, I wouldn't say it was difficult, but it was, it was hard work. But it wasn't like, you know, it, w- it wasn't like that. It wasn't like having to convince myself to get out of bed and wake up and go outside every day. Um, so it's, it's, you know, like Aristotle talked about, I would say now life is good, but when I say life is good, that doesn't mean that I'm apathetic to things that occur. So it's like when 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 Aristotle said life's good, he didn't mean that life was easy. It, it was still life is still difficult, and it's good because of that. Because from the 
challenge of purpose and meaning we go. So as I start moving on in my life and I start, I start looking at things and look, I've been asking why since I was seven years, you know, seven years of age. I remember when I was 15, Ben Kern, I went into his office, asked him questions and Mr. Kern, uh, what do you think about this? And he said, I can't answer your golf questions anymore because I was going to that next area. I was going into that next level of, you know, I said to Ben one time about muscle memory. Um, what do you think? He said, you know, you just got to do more practices to get better muscle memory. And I was like, well, I have a friend who's paralyzed, so is muscle memory even possible? And so it's that kind of, that why kid. So life, when you're a why kid, um, from probably about 8 to 25, life was kind of tormenting. Um, because you watch everyone just moving, you know, just following the shepherd, and you watch all these sheep, and you come up with these ideas, whether it's religion or politics or whatever, and you share them with people, and they're all like, what? So as a young kid, you just think there's something wrong with you. And I think that that substantially manifests over time, almost until it metastasizes, that inwards you have all these, you know, these doubts about yourself, whereas you've kind of been moving in the right direction. And then Tennessee State taught me, God, it just taught me so, 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 so much. And um, once I started getting into the golf, you know, I kind of had a bit of a science background. Um, as I was moving into golf and then looking at my mentors, you know, you got Jack and, you know, Jack and Ben and so many more uh, uh, along the way. And then I read everything from that I could possibly read. So Sean, I just, wa- Sean, I just want to jump in now because I, I, I think what, what, I, again, it's interesting to hear you talk about how, what characterized your early years. But I think what, what Tim and I want to jump into now is, you know, people who listen to this show, and of course the two of us are seekers of information. One of the reasons I think we all resonate with one another is that we think of golf as more than just a bunch of positions and, and moving a golf ball from position sure. A to position B. But let's get, uh, we want to get into some of the, the more nuts and bolts of things. Timmy? Well, it was really interesting, uh, Sean, to hear you say that um, a lot of your response or the response you got was what? And you got that even into your in your career once you got down in um, you know, 2006 in Orlando. You start to work with Stephen Ames. That leads to O'Hare. Mm-hmm. And you would talk about things about golf that other people I'd never heard them talk about. I mean, you'd bring into a lesson Che Guevara, Keynesian economics, and Mother Teresa. But I think that's just you would just have a wider look at the game. And, I, and that's the point I want to make is that I think part of the reason you've had some success, Sean, is that you look at golf more than just, you know, tab A into slot B type of mechanics, but also almost the spiritual part, the philosophy of the game, and the psychology of it. So, Well, look, when, when, guys, when guys struggle on tour, um, when they really, really, really struggle, okay, versus what it's been, it's not a mental issue. Like, I can't stand the word mental issue because to me what happens in many cases is they compromise their spiritual platform. So you're dealing with honesty, integrity, character, truth, like realness, like that. See, those are the things that keep you up at night. Like, you know, getting nervous over a five-footer doesn't keep anyone up at night. I mean, that happens. And, and what, what I've got to at this point in the coaching is trying to get people to realize that you know, we are still being raised in the outside-in world where we can use things from the outside to help things with the inside. So I've got a player. Um, player A is doing working with a sports psychologist. sports psychologist says, look, you need to feel like a champion in order to play well. And I'm like, I completely disagree with that. And they're like, well, why? I mean, you've got to be, feel like a champion to be a champion. So I what said, would you know feel what? like a champion? What would that 
advice well, my, quickly. My, my point is, though, is I, well, it doesn't matter. I don't even. I didn't even try to. I didn't even try to think about it. So I just yeah. said, look, this player needs to know that they can feel terrible and still be a champion. Because what we need to recognize is that our feelings, our feelings are just really the aftermath of this roller coaster of consciousness that we're going through. So early in the morning, guy's going to work, walks past a homeless guy, he's up, he's up in consciousness, he's up on that roller coaster. He says, "Get you know, gives the guy twenty bucks." Two days later. He's coming home, walks by the same homeless guy and says, get a job. But the thing is, the homeless guy hasn't changed in any situation. So he's just sitting there. He hasn't said anything. He's just sitting there. So the fact of the matter is that it's not the circumstance or situation that's making us feel anything. It's just the state of mind we're at while we're projecting and, and perceiving reality. So when you start to realize that you're the problem and the solution. So for me, I became much happier when I realized that it was okay to be sad. To be with, to just to be in the sadness versus thinking yeah. there's something wrong and I need to fix it. What's fascinating? Okay, there you go. What's you fascinating go. to me and has and, and has always been about people like you is that at, on at first glance you you might think, well, how could that person? Uh, who is obviously in a, in a search for being as awake as possible. How do you translate that to, you know, when you're a younger uh, instructor at, at the Abbey and you got to make a living and you're given in eight and 10 lessons a day, how do you then start to just bit by bit bring in some of the, uh, the teachings that we're talking about, some of, the, some of the stuff that you're saying is in the four agreements, some of the, you know, the, the aspects of life, the, the roller coaster you're talking about. How do you then, and somewhere in your 20s, think, you know, there's a bigger, there's a bigger lesson here, but I still, you still have to make a living. How do you start to met that out or meet that out to lessons on the range at Glen Abbey? I don't know. I think everything in my life that's ever been helpful or mattered was all organic. I've, I've don't plan anything. I've, I've, I mean, I've given 200 speeches in the last two years, never with a PowerPoint, um, and never with any intention or plan whatsoever. I just get up and just talk and I just let that stream of consciousness just guide me. And the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, what, where I'm at now, it's kind of getting people to realize that, well, look at my, look, the, I mean, it's an unbelievable, the two very good ways to learn. When I was at Glen Abbey, I was a personal trainer in the morning, then I would teach golf, and then I would wait tables at the Keg and Oakville. So, I mean, talk about, all I did all day was just watch people and observe people and watch how, you know, say, Mr. Miller, one day, one Saturday, he'd be hitting the ball poorly and be okay with it. And then the next Saturday, he would be hitting the ball poorly and be upset with it. And... He still thought it was because at BMO, trading was down the day before, but it wasn't that. Because, you know, he, that, that's the whole thing. That's outside in. So I didn't want to get to the point in my life where I was giving the responsibility and my happiness to all these outside things that I don't have control of. And I've come to Sean, the realization... I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know what I'm asking you, though? It's like it's fine to say that and, and to, to not be affected and not to hang your happiness on outside forces. But when somebody's on the range with you at 11 a.m. and they say, I, I just had a horrible round yesterday. I can't stop slicing it. And you realize, and you realize the reason they're not enjoying their lives and, and their rounds is it has nothing to do with their slice. Well, the thing is, the, the, you know what? I look at it like this. Like, I've been on the range before with a couple of my young kids. I coach two kids right now who are ranked number one and two in the United States. And we basically, you know, we basically hit balls together and we play together and, 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 and I just hang out with them. And 
um, I kind of sneak, you know, I give them sneaky lessons. So um, we're out playing, and I'm on the range, and I'm like on my sixth pyramid of vault, and I hit the ball, hit the ball, and the kid's like, Coach, I don't know why you keep hitting. Like, you haven't hit a ball with any curve in 10 minutes. I go, I haven't hit a shot that I like yet. And he goes, you're crazier than all of us. And I go, oh, 100%. I said, of, of course I am. So how I look at it is that I'm kind of the, I'm the head counselor at AA. So I've, I have taken this to the most personal psychotic level. I mean, I'm talking about changing my swing on a daily basis, doing this, growing up, you know, go out to the national, playing, playing the national, and as soon as I miss the green regulation, I go back to the range and punish myself with a, with 500 balls. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I've always been so crazy like that and so neurotic and, and strange. So I can speak to these guys because I get it. So I get that it feels like the world is crumbling around you because you're pushing your seven iron. But it's so I've been through it. Like, you wouldn't want to go to AA and say to the counselor, so, you know, how has alcohol ruined your life? Well, I've never had a drink. I don't even understand why you guys drink. Well, a wounded that, warrior. That's, You're a wounded yeah, that warrior. Part, yeah, that person is not going to help very much. So I, I totally get like when they're losing it, I totally get where they're at, and I can always remind them as I've learned. Hey, I know it feels like an eight out of ten right now, but it's only a two. So just realize that two hours from now, it's not going to feel like anything. So don't get convinced in this moment that you have to add and do all these other things when you know that you are just feeling the low quality of your own thinking which is coming from the state of mind you're in. So it's just your mind lying to you. It doesn't even matter. I know it feels like the world's caving in around you, but it's not. And everything that, I, if I had a dollar for every time I told this to my players, two things. One is stop, stop letting perfection get in the way of greatness. And two um, is that everything I worry about never happens to me anyways. Right. Absolutely. So, like 95% day, of the things you worry about never happen. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, and, you know, some things you never think about happen, but so when people like, you know, you got to ask, believe, receive, like the theory of the secret and all that stuff, there was a point when that was very romantic to me when I was younger, and, and I would do this, but, and people said, man, you did that, and look at your life, it turned out the same way, and I'm like, I still don't think it did that way, because the other 50 people that I used to go to these courses with um, are still struggling, so it can't, can't come from that, it can't come from that so i don't think that confidence is necessary in doing anything well i think competence is is is, is completely what you have to have so you know that's just challenging those things that i hear like you know golf is a game of confidence look my guys have won 31 tournaments on the pga tour since 2007 and 90 percent of the time I will tell you that when they teed off on Sunday, they had nothing but doubt, and they had no confidence, and they just went out and just kept swinging, and it worked out. So when people are saying that you know these players believe deeply in their soul they're going to win, I know all these guys. I have dinner with all these. Even if they're not my players, players from Adam Scott to Rory, you name it, I've been with all of them for on many occasions. And they will tell you when they look cool and calm and they're doing their thing and we're watching them in, in, in complete awe that they're just trying to make sure they don't throw up when the camera's on. So <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very powerful to understand that these guys are freaking out too, but they, can, they realize that, okay, I don't, have to perf- I don't have to get calm to perform well. When I feel like this, I hit it about 13 yards further with my yeah. short irons, about 16 yards 
So they're they're just accepting where they're at rather than trying to battle. So, so a lot of it's awareness. Stuff, so for the for the average for the average golfer listening, that gives them at least some insight into the fact that when they're trying to win their NASA or their you know a personal best that that the guys that you see on TV are just as nervous and overcoming the same insecurities that we are on the last hole at our local club oh no 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 100% the difference with us is re- remember it, you know we've all had young kids and you remember when they're babies they you can see the roller coaster of consciousness in a child because they can't intellectualize their experience so they kind of go home boom. you know I've had my I've had one of my sons say, Daddy, I don't like you, and I never like you. And two minutes later, he's laying on my chest. Wait till you have well, daughters. <laughs> oh, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to have sons where, you know, I've had my friends say, I don't like you, and then they didn't call me back for a month. Because they have the intellectual, you know, they have the intellectual capacity to hold a grudge and, and to keep, you know, building up in their mind whatever they think is happening. And, and, and look, here's, here's the thing is that Society thinks that their eyes are cameras taking snapshots of reality, whereas they don't realize that their eyes are just projectors and they're creating films all day. And, you know, we're, we're seeing with our two eyes, like that's where the information comes in, but then we project out the middle of our mind. So the Egyptians talked about it, the, uh, the first Israelites talked about it, and talking about the third eye, it's kind of the, the, the part of wisdom. So I think what people, what's been very powerful for me to realize is it how I'm feeling is I'm not in control of that. So some days I'm happy and some days I'm not. It seems if I'm not happy, if I try to get happy, I get even darker um, because there's just a truth to it. So I think it's, it's really important for golfers to understand that if you're over a shot, like every golfer has their, has a couple holes at their course that they never play well. Mm-hmm. And most psychologists, have, I think, have completely got wrong why they screw up on those holes with negative self-talk, and that stuff doesn't even matter, okay? That, I, I know guys who, I've worked some players who are the top in the world at every single level where if you ask them about their game, they'll be like, you know what, I drive it awful, I'm a bad iron player, I can't pitch or chip, and I'm probably the worst putter, and they're ranked number two. So... <laughs> <laughs> All that self-talk doesn't lead to performance. That's hilarious. You, I, yeah. Well, I just, the thing is, Howard, I would have said back in the day, I would have told a kid, oh, man, you're going to really build this reality and, and this and this and this. But then I hear it, and it's just like, wow, man, like it's, like even I've, I've worked with, I've given lessons to top surgeons who every time they get done, they're so upset with how they did on a brain surgery where they saved the kid from a brain tumor. And they're like, you know what? I took too long. I wasn't clean enough and I wasn't focused. The point is classic. So is that, so what you're talking about here is perspective, right? In terms of like being aware, like one of the piece I was reading in, uh, no, I think, no, I think perspective is like making a double bogey and it's like so upsetting and, and this and this and that. And, Perspective is just recognizing that while you're making double bogey, like people are dying of cancer. Okay, so speak Perception to intention. is what I am creating. So acceptance, but also, does that also link into intention? Because I think that one of the things that you, in all the years I've uh, known you, you've talked about that from, from time to time. And there's, I think a classic example was with Hunter Mahan, one of your, your players. And I'm trying to create a way so that the average person can really understand. Mm. I think you were saying that Hunter, he used to just fixate on low scores all the time like that really tight spotlight on himself and his performance which you know most average amateurs do but once he met uh candy and his kind of his perspective shifted or 
<laughs> Maybe that's not the right word, Sean. But talk no, about, no, how, no, no, no. Talk about I mean, how that, how the average player can relate to what you're talking about in terms of intention and that tight spotlight of, uh, of maybe of judgment that players put on themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, you know, I think that people people have identity crisis, and I think that when you're when you're younger, like Hunter was, I mean, his whole life since he was ten had been about golf, and. I mean, like literally about golf, and that was, you know, that was made a focus by that was made a focus by his, you know his dad pushed him very hard, and these things. And then what happened was when Candy came around. Um, now they have two two kids, and they have a third on the way. Um, and he's he's an awesome dad, you know. For me, um, I had to work at being a dad, but Hunter is like really natural at it. It's quite mm. it's quite impressive to watch. And I think what happened was just kind of like, you know, you realize there's more to it. So that doesn't mean that the shot's not important. Like, every single shot you hit in golf is the most important thing in the world at that moment. And then after you hit it, I mean, what else can you do? Like, nothing nothing else the way you react or nothing else the way you can do is going to change where the ball ends up, good or bad. So I think that with, with the, the average amateur out there or just the amateur period, whether you're one hit cap or a 30 hit cap. Hey, hey, Pro, I, I know you're on the move. You probably have someplace to go. Are, are you on your way to your car? Sean. Oh, there, he's, what I think is happening is he's transitioning to his hands-free in the car. Yeah. I mean, if we're all hey, if we're all, if we're all about the moment, let's just acknowledge that you've now made a transition from your house to your car. Uh, where are you on your way to this morning? Uh, I'm just going here to... Uh, um, to King's Point, where I live, uh, to the range to teach a Canadian guy on a a, a a gift certificate for when I came down here to core. There was a boy who was one of our original clients. He was a kid named Kyle Siami, and uh, oh yeah, he, was in, he, he died a couple of years ago in a motorcycle accident. So when I was at Glen Abbey um, years ago. Um, there was this this guy who was a total classic, like a total, complete Canadian, like a beauty Canadian, uh, named named Mark, and he br- he would bring his four sons. So my whole goal in the lesson would be just to make sure that only two of them were bleeding by the end. <laughs> they, they used to pummel each other. So Mark, for the last couple of years, I donated to the Kyle Sayani Foundation. So Mark's coming here. So what's really funny is I'm about to see Mark, and we go back to, I, I remember I used to have to give myself pep talks before his sons would come on Saturday at 4 o'clock because it was like the hardest hour of the day. Um, so he's, a, he's an awesome guy, but I'm not, I'm not necessarily, uh, I'm, I'm 15 or 16 minutes early. So uh, What do you, what do you think about this? Uh, I'm going to read you something, and then I, I, and we're going to, we, in the next 15 minutes, let's see if we can parse this uh, interview in, in some sound bites that somebody might be able to, you know, drill down and, and take to the course in a couple weeks. I'm going to read something to you, and you react to it. If you live in a past dream, you don't enjoy what is happening right now because you will always wish it to be different than it is. Not enjoying what is happening right now is living in the past and being only half alive. This leads to self-pity, suffering, and tears. Now, that quote has nothing to do with golf, but it has everything to do with the way golfers synthesize the experience. What do you think? Um, 
Yeah, I, the thing is, is I don't want any. I don't want the people that I work with to ever think that where they're at is wrong because I don't think that we have um, much to any control of, of where we're at. So, I, what I want people to realize is that when you are sitting there over a pot and you're thinking of, you know, all of a sudden three pot pops in. Um, or you're on the tee and all of a sudden all you can see is out of bounds, is you just have to realize that 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 the pops in your head is just from a mental construct of past experiences. So it's not really relevant to that moment uh, uh, whatsoever. So just because you're thinking of out of bounds, it, it doesn't mean you're going to hit it out of bounds. I mean, so, yeah, the past is, look, you can't, have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen, I would tell, one of the most simple things from anyone to learn by is by Bob Newhart. And Bob Newhart did, um, he did a, he did a, a skit where he was a five minute therapist. <laughs> and the lady comes in and she says, uh, this is five minutes, only $5. I mean, this is amazing. And she says, have you had other therapy? And she goes, yes. He said, how does that therapy make you feel? She goes, always worse. And he goes, well, it only takes five minutes here. It probably only take me three. So she says, uh, he says, okay, start. What's your problem? And she says, uh, my problem uh, is I really get worried that I'm going to be buried alive in a box. And he goes, okay, are you ready for your therapy? And she goes, yep. And he says, okay, two words. She says, all right. He said, stop it. (laughs) And she she says, she says, what? She says, what? What What do you mean, stop it? He goes, well, just stop it. He goes, I mean, how awful is it living, thinking you're going to die buried in the box? She says, yes, but when I was a little girl, he goes, oh, we don't go there. We never go there. <laughs> and she goes, but, but, but my, my priest said, he goes, oh, we don't go there. And she says, well, she, she says, well, well you know, my uh, horse, he goes, we definitely never go there. So it's, it's really interesting. Then she says, and, and a couple later, she goes, I'm compelled to stick my fingers in my throat. He goes, stop it. And she goes, but when I was a little girl, my mom said I was fat. He goes, no, we don't go there. So to, to me, it's, a, it's not as, like, this isn't as, like, this isn't as deep as Aristotle. It's the ability to, one of my friends, Paul Doolin, um, who, Paul Doolin has to get on this show. I We've had him on the show. Right. We've had him on Twitter. Where have you been? We've had him on twice. Don't start with us. Oh, okay. Stop All it. All right. <laughs> How Actually, dare you? So Doolin, Doolin is a beauty, right? Yeah, right. super and beauty. I, I, I got a I got a ton of time for for Paul and he's doing he's doing great things and he's awesome. Um, but you know it, it, that's kind of basically he said to me he goes the reason that he was talking him and I went for dinner one night and he goes I don't think I've ever seen anyone edit themselves as well as you and I'm like oh I'm, I don't I, I'm not doing it on purpose but I had to start at some point because when I was 21 um, I was diag- I was diagnosed at school with severe depression and people said well you know. He's at this school, and everyone's very prejudiced to him, and it's very difficult, and he's away from home, and he's this, this, and that. Look, I was that way because I was so upset that I wasn't happy and grateful all the time. And I'm like, man, I come, from, I have great parents. I've had great experiences. I should be grateful. So when I wasn't, you know, um, I, felt, I felt shame, and that's where it all stemmed from. It wasn't the fact of... It was, I didn't even allow myself to be sad, which is why I ended up becoming so, so sad. So I think that if you're in the past, Howard, you're going to be sad. So my, my friend said, well, I think you can think about the past and the good old times. I said, yeah, 
But if you're in the present talking about the good old days, then that means in the present that you're not that you're that you're not in a good spot. And that's where you say well, that, stop it. And that's by the way, Sean. That's the point of that quote. Yeah. That's from the Four Agreements by uh, Miguel Ruiz, and and it it really resonates with me because all it's saying, and it, and it it applies to golf, and it applies to driving home today. It's that in this moment, that driver that cuts you off has nothing to do with you. It's how you're sure. you're in yeah. this moment now, and if you're thinking about uh, the last time you played this hole, you hit an OB, or in the future, man, if I just par in, I'm going to have my best round or win the club championship. You're not in that moment. And sure, you can see out of bounds left and think, shoot, I, I've been hooking it today, and you can say, stop it. But in this moment, it's how you synthesize the world that leads to, I think, better golf and a better experience. Yeah, but, and that's the thing, though, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's like putting. Think about putting. And guys, guys I know get really in their heads about their putting. And I mean, gosh, a, a putting stroke of a 10-foot putt, I mean, how can you not keep the face and pass square in a 7-inch stroke? I mean, it's like, so I think the, the issue is that it's, it. it's quite easy to hit a good putt. But it's not easy to make putts because this ball is rolling on the ground. It's affected by the laws of inertia. Greens look flat, but if you put them under a microscope, they look like the, the top of the Amazon jungle. And we have this thing that we use called a perfect putter. And it's, uh, it's uh, just this little de- uh, little device, and it, you know we roll balls down. David Orr uses so it, right? In the morning, we just check, you know, like we try to hit uh, straight in downhill, straight in uphill, left to right, right to left, and we just do this little drill. And, Okay, at 10 feet with this perfect putter, okay, this thing is perfect, all right? At 4 feet, it goes in every time. At 10 feet, I remember at Bay Hill, we had this right-to-left putt, and we rolled 10 balls, and only four went in, and every single one of those balls left at the exact same velocity. Every single ball. So people are like, well, well, how come that did that? Like, well, some of these balls may not be as round as others. There's so many variables, and then all we do and understanding and, and underestimating the difficulty of this is we look in the mirror and put the onus on us when right, and that's, there's so many facts. We take so it personally. So to connect with Ben Kern, he again, it's right on how we respond. And I remember Ben saying to me, he said, when the putt left, when the ball left the putter, it was up to the gods and gravity. He had done everything he could, and he just let it go. Yeah, that's that's why I've moved, that's why I've kind of I think I've continued to grow. I'll just leave it to gravity. You know, I, I, you know, Sean, one of my favorite Ben Kern stories, and I've told this before, but I'll just really quickly, is Ben Kern, when I knew him, was always in between swings and patterns and working on his swing. Oh, 100%. Right. And, and I remember golfing with him, and, and, and it, was, it was fascinating because I would watch him, a former PGA Tour player, hit a driver a foot off the ground, diving left, and any other person would go either embarrassed or th- all those things you think about. Because that to, was close. That's exactly what he said. He goes, he'd go, man, I'm so close. I go, close to what? <laughs> that isn't even on the earth anymore. But Ben's yeah, reaction to every shot was, I'm so close. Well, people always ask me about Mo Norman. And I, you know, Tim, Tim, Tim I mean, Tim's an expert on the, on the topic. I, I know a little bit. Uh, and they're like, you know, Mo Norman never, I, I had dinner the other night. Um, when I was working with, um, with, with Rosie, with Justin, I had dinner with Justin and, and uh, uh, Adam Scott. So we were hanging out. Scotty said to me, he said, Shawnee, what, tell me about Mo Norman. I heard he never didn't hit it straight. I said, he hit the ball offline, I'm sure, all the time. I said, but if you ask Mo, he did. I mean, I remember watching Mo do a clinic once, 
and he pulled the seven iron. He goes, never moves, never curves. Um, yeah. And I don't think people really realize how much that Bo Norman used to drive around and listen to self-help eight tracks, right? So it's, I think Mo was as amazing kind of spiritually as he was technically, and I just don't think that. I saw a list a few years ago of Moe's to-do list, and it, I got it from the Royal Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. And it was his golf to-do list. And then I think there was 23 things on there. I think there was only three things on there having to do with the swing. The rest sounded like the rest sounded like the first two chapters of Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. So, <laughs> you know, that's, um, people have missed out on, you know, pe- I think people have, 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 have missed out on that fact. Oh, well, but then, think, yeah, yeah. Ben well, used to hit those hooks and, and be like, God, that was so close. I used, to sit there and, I used to sit there and watch the ball go on the houses on, too, and think, like, oh, my God, he's trying to get me to work on the same thing. Yeah. And, but I, but I, what I took away from that, and I realized it years later, is that in Ben's mind, it didn't matter what the outside world thought of what he was doing. And he didn't care that he used to be one of the top players on the PGA oh, Tour. Oh, he, he was just, and it's funny you mentioned, I saw him hit it left on two, left on four. You know, it was, it was out of bounds half of the first nine holes, and... And then something would click because in his mind, it was always in this moment, I, I feel good or I'm only adjudicating what I'm working on, not what you think of me. Yeah, no, he, he, there's, there's no kid in the history of the National who did as much as he was told as what Ben told me to do. I mean, I did, I did so many drills for so long on the tile floors of wherever I was at, like that I almost got bunions from it. <laughs> I remember Ben one time. I remember Ben one time told told Danny King and Mark Burke and all these guys, Jeff Hay, all my all these beauties. I love these guys. I mean, what an unbelievable, what a petri dish of beauties. And um, <laughs> you're a 14 year old kid, you know. And so Ben said, "Watch this kid. He'll do whatever I said." So he had me come out, and he said, "I think you may be left-handed." And so he had me do hello there drills, everything left-handed for two hours in front of the the old you know, mirror slash windows in front of the thing. And then he came out and said, he came out and said, uh, Hey, uh, you know, you're, you're right handed. And then all of a sudden I heard all this laughter from inside the process. Oh, so funny. Ben had won some money against those guys betting him that I would go and do that. I mean, how funny is that? Tim's got a couple of things he wants to uh, finish off with. I know you got to go. Uh, we want to, uh, thank you for your time. Tim, uh, is prepared a list of, uh, what do you call this? This is, uh, Oh, it's my top five, I think, list, and it's a quickie. So, Sean, you're, you know, talk about beauties. You're one, pal, and I've always loved being around you because you're so eclectic and and uh, your interests all, are all over. So I want to do a quick hit here. What's your favorite book? What is, what is my favorite book? My, oh, that's a tough one. I mean, God. Just answer uh, the first like, thing that comes to your mind. Yeah, don't think it. Don't adjudicate. Don't adju- um, favorite book. Probably, uh, I'd have to say like a. I'd probably have to say, Long Walk to Freedom, Mandela. Okay. Okay. Favorite. Oh, is that favorite movie? <laughs> Two. No, that's my favorite. That's my favorite book. I read the book probably about twenty years ago. Okay, I read the movie. book probably twenty times. Favorite movie. Please don't say Hot Tub Time Machine. Oh, you could if you want. Favorite movie, probably Platoon. Okay. It just popped in. Favorite philosopher. Well, you've already said Aristotle. Would that be it? No, 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 no. He's okay. Remember, the Greeks stole everything from the Kish Empire, so it's amazing. Well, of like, course I, I remember that. that. Who, who, who didn't remember that? 
Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I think uh, my favorite philosopher will probably be Bob Marley. Okay. Okay. So this might be you might this might be it. We'll end on this one. Favorite quote. Uh, well, okay, I have two, and and they're almost the same, and they both arose in my life when I was eleven. So my mom is Guyanese, and. Um, so she's West Indian, so there's a lot of reggae albums around my house. So I'm about 11, and I look at this album cover, and it uh, is this green and yellow and black and red album cover with this guy with this huge hair. This is Bob Marley in the whale. So I said, all right, so I start playing it. Well, within the first bar and riff, I'm done. Like, I'm, this is my guy forever. And so... My dad remembers the exact day that I came up to him at 12 and said, Dad, what, uh, what does emancipate mean? And he said, uh, well, emancipate means free. I said, so what does he mean by, you know, to emancipate yourself from mental slavery that none but ourselves can free our minds? And he says, well, he's kind of saying this. I said, so, like, why do we pray then? And so that's me. That's me as a kid, right? So... I'm doing that. So that's one thing. So the interesting thing about Bob was that, you know, most of his career he talked about the Duffy Conqueror and the establishment and, the, you know, the crazy bald heads, which were the colonials who were taking over Jamaica, all this. And then he realizes, because Redemption Song is the last song that he ever writes. So he, he dies at 35, and he realizes as he's laying in the hospital that the whole the, the whole time... The only thing holding him back has been his own mind. And so he doesn't need to look up. He doesn't need to ask Ja. He doesn't need to ask his friends. They, the answer is inside. So that was, that was one thing. And then the second thing was the first, uh, in the first paragraph, the first line from Rousseau's social contract. Man is born free, yet everywhere he is in chains. Um, so uh, the way Rousseau took that was, you know, politics, uh, economics, uh, war, all that. And... I just kept searching and searching and searching for what that was, and I've kind of finished it off in my own mind now, is that man is born free, yet everywhere he's in chains, um, confined to the shackles of his own mind. So that's those are my two favorite quotes. Those two quotes right there have probably, even though they're only a sentence long, they've pretty much helped me manifest about everything I perceive after those two things. So that, that's very... Uh, that's very, very special. I remember actually getting a D in high school in a philosophy class because I said Rousseau was wrong. So there you go. Sean Foley, I don't know if you can hear in the background little uh, Bob Marley for you as we say goodbye. Listen, dude, um, I'm not sure, uh, you know, we've all been hanging out, Doolin and I, and I've been down there a couple times, and I was... Uh, you know, there's so much we have in common to you, me, and Tim. I mean, I'm Tom Jackson was one of the first people that ever gave me a lesson at Jeff the National. Hay. Jeff Hay. And so there's going to be a time we'll all uh, be in a room together and uh, shoot the breeze some more. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no, my pleasure, guys. No, it's, it's, uh, I've known Tim for a long time, and we've helped each other along the way. And uh, obviously, Howard, I've known you since... Well, since I was at that, that a young kid at the National, and then you know you lived right by Glen Abbey, so we you know you come hit some balls and stuff. So no, it's 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 cool. The, the best part about what I've learned over the last years is you know understanding that this is literally an inside-out thing. So the, the the difference between thinking life is uh, is 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 these snapshots of reality versus the idea of projection is that my brother said something that I really felt was 
was helpful. Like the two of the best compliments I've ever got have been by 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 my brother. My brother told my my friends were saying, "Oh, you know, you're big time now, and look at you, you know, look at your house, you're big time." And and look, houses and all that stuff was never in my vision at, at all. I had no interest like that. That didn't drive me. Uh, my insecurity to be heard probably drove me more than my insecurity to be like you know successful. So. Um, Kevin said to my buddies, he goes, he's like, everything in his life has changed and he's still the same. And then the other part that was really nice is at the PGA Summit this year, uh, someone was talking about how I'm a mad scientist and how I do this and force plates and this, and I've broken down to the particle and the atom of the golf swing and blah, 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 which is, which is pretty much untrue. Um, and basically, um, my buddy said, hey, look, he goes, what you guys don't understand, I've been shadowing this guy for five years. He could take an NBA team who are under 500 at the All-Star break and they'd have a winning record at the end of the year and he doesn't know the first thing about basketball. And that, <laughs> that's and that, great. That's, that's, like, don't you think Mike Krzyzewski, not knowing much about hockey, could be a decent hockey coach knowing sure. what he knows about men? I mean, you know, like you have to tell Sidney Crosby to go across the ice when this defenseman comes this way. So it's um, yeah, I'm just grateful, man, and I'm going back to I'm going back to the Masters uh, yeah. tomorrow again. Where uh, every time I go to the Masters, the first thing I the first person I think about is Stephen Ainge because you know I was there with him at my first major in 2007. I stayed at his house. We went to the IMG house and had dinner with Ernie Els. I mean, talk about freakout mode. Um, so yeah, it's kind of cool when all your, you know, when all your heroes become your peers. And uh, so every single day, I'm, you know, I'm in a good spot because every single day, even leaving dinner the other night with Justin and Adam, I still thought to myself, this is still so cool to you. Is and, it surreal? Like, it's interesting. No, you have, no, you have that perspective. Not surreal. Well, well, surreal is. I mean, you still surreal is the wrong way I wanted to express that. You still have the ability, from what you're saying to appreciate the moment. I mean, for my own self, oh, I've, had, yeah. I've had people in my studios over the years, whether sure. it's Robert Duval or, you know, sure. Chris Martin, and I'm sitting there talking to them, and when they leave, I think, you know, this wow. is, how, how this just took place is interesting, and I'm still not, I'm still grateful for the moment. I'm still, like, able to have some perspective on what that was just like or what it's like talking to those people. No, I totally, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And you know what? Howard, uh, you will know um, at the same time that I do. The day that the day that I go through that and don't feel that, that'll right. be time to uh, time to move on. Great talking to you, and uh, let's do it again soon. Okay, great great talking to you guys. Have a good day. Have a great week, Sean. Okay, bye now. Bye. All right, there's uh, Sean Foley. That was uh, that was crazy. He's he uses the word beauty all the time. He is a classic. He's a beauty. He, he's uh, a he's a different kind of beauty, though. Oh, you know, yeah. like he's a, he's a different cat. And I just hope that our golfers, the guys that subscribe to our po- podcast, uh, got as much out of that as I know you and I did. Oh, he's. I love Sean in terms of the the depth of his um, his intellectual capacity, his curiosity his drive and a lot of that came from need he he said it he was insecure for a lot of he always wanted to be right and i never ever i th- came across someone who had so much confidence than sean foley and he just brings um a perspective 
to golf and to life and a lot of things that I think just a lot of people just they find it hard to relate to because they think, as we said, he's a beauty. They go, he's weird. Well, no. Man. Well, no. Here's the thing. I mean, he he is like everyone else and everyone listening. He's insecure at a level that we couldn't even understand. But what we what drove him is to explore that as opposed to ignore it, which as you know from some of the things that you've been in, you know doing in your life, most men and women too never want to really look at that side of themselves. I, I disagree with one thing you said, though. I don't think he's, you know, yes, he might be a bit above average intelligence, but what I think Sean has done, and it's what you've done, and I think maybe I do a little bit, is he considers everything. And, and he considered it early on. With a lot of human beings, we don't start considering life until we've lived a good chunk of it. That's why people as they age become a little mellower or they have some perspective because of having lived all those years. But he got it early. He got it early. And he, as he said in his story, you know, from the time he was seven to 25, he was wondering why, and wondering why. Well, most of us don't. Most human beings don't t- consider things the way he did. And that was from the consideration that he was able to have an opinion on things because he thought long and hard about them. Mm-hmm. Um you know, maybe that wasn't our usual, hey, if the guy's on 18 and he feels blah, blah, blah. I, I think for, for me as a golfer, it's interesting to hear that when I'm watching uh, the Masters next week and knowing that, you know, Rory's got a two-shot lead in the 15th hole, that he's going to be as nervous as any human being w- would be. You know, you teach people every day to, you know, to hopefully have a, a, some kind of handle on their mental demons, but it's not going to mean you don't have them. Oh, that's the that's the misconception that average players have about great players is that they don't have the same demons. This they do, and but they have processes. They have ways to get through it. And they're and like Sean was talking about how um, it was interesting. He was saying that when someone's over a putt and they realize they think, and I think what happens with a really good player is that they go to a place where they're not thinking and i want it's too bad i mean there's so many things yeah we could do a couple hours with yeah him. just trying to get an edge word i know it was shot because he he man that guy and i could. apologize you know a couple times i just had to interrupt him because oh, yeah. you know there, because we've got pages of stuff we'd like to ask him yeah well anyways the what i have known to come happen with really good players pga tour players especially they're able to go to a place of non-thinking and feeling and focus points uh, where they're able to get through so that they're not focused on the result and what's happening. They get out of their heads. And that is a, a key piece in, in all of this is being able to, to, to sync with the body. But Sean is just such an intellectual. It's, it's hard to kind of go there. But he did him. have a couple things. You know, it's an interesting listing. I wrote a couple things down because I knew we would discuss it after. Uh, just things that I, I thought of when he was talking about, you know, elite players, they get nervous, but they know that when they feel this way, they hit their, yeah. uh, they, they know that there's a, 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 a you, you hit your irons longer or you, you tend to do this. They know themselves well. They know their tendencies well under pressure. Whereas I think a lot of us, we have short memories for things that have gotten us through in the past and don't consider maybe under nervous conditions to maybe back down a club or two or you know maybe aim for a safer target all those things that you know are part of the processes that you would maybe hope to have in place but as you just mentioned that they have practiced that as well i wish there was you know more time to have sean talk a little bit about like you know what do you teach what does hunter mayhan do 
But I thought that was a good, uh, a good sort of opening. If we ever get them again, there's just so many questions, man. Oh yeah, you could spend a lot of time with Sean Foley. Um, he was talking about in, intention there, um, and also in terms of Bo Norman. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens with really good players is they're they are more attuned to their feelings, what's really going on in their body and their mind than the average person. Yes. So it comes down to a lot of awareness. And so I think that what happens is, is a player has been in that position of being in competition and being under the pressure. They know to, to really understand what they're feeling, what's mm-hmm. going on for me right now. So thus they can make a response and go, okay, uh, from 175, I usually hit my six iron. Well, hmm, we can go down to a seven here. And also my tendency is to do such and such, you know, on the greens when I'm tense, that there's an awareness and it's that being able to drill into their feelings and really understand what's going on for them. And the average person does it because they're stuck in their head. They're stuck in their head. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I was sort of trying to pigeonhole in there is this, uh, I've been reading a lot of this uh, Miguel Ruiz thing lately. And, you know, there's so much of it. That what's the book? It's called The Four Agreements. It's a pretty... It's been around for a while, but it's, it's, it's like Zen stuff. It, very Zen, but it's yeah. very, you know, the funny thing is it's very Zen, but it's super practical. Here's another thing I think applies to golfers. Don't take, and it's a great quote. Don't take anything personally because by taking things personally, you set yourself up to suffer for nothing. You know that there's nothing in a round of golf that has anything that none, the forces haven't conspired against you. The other thing I want, I was trying to find this while you were talking, you know, you talk about a lot, you know, Tim's philosophy, and I think it's a great one, is you talk about how does your body feel? Be more aware of how your body is reacting. You know, and I'll be honest with you, you used to say that, and I didn't quite buy into it. Because I'm like a lot of, you know, players, maybe good or bad, but I try and intellectualize, like, what is it I need to do but you've tried to drill into us through this series. Drill. Well, but you try to. You've you've reiterated that. Just what does your body feel like? And one of the things I read last night is uh, in this particular book is basically if we as people go inside our bodies, feel what's going on at that moment, your mind plays tricks on you. This is the exact quote. Paraphrasing. Your mind play, will play tricks on you, but your body will tell you exactly what you need to, it, your instinct. Absolutely. Your, your, what your truth really is at that moment. And as golfers, if we just consider that a little bit, how do I feel right now? Do I think I can clear that water hazard? Because if in my, intellectually, I might think, well, I have the ability, I've done it before, but feeling it right now, I'm not feeling it. Yeah, well, most of the things that go on in your body happen subconsciously. You don't control them. Your hair grows. You breathe. Your heart beats. The blood flows through. It's all happening subconsciously. You're not controlling it. So your body is in control if you can really dial into what's going on instead of letting your ego, not letting, but well, no, being but conscious you, of your I, ego I hijacks because your ego wants to protect you from from all the traumas and things that have gone on before. So it's looking into the future. It's looking back to make sure we don't make the same mistakes. Your body is always in the present moment. And if you can just really just quiet down a bit, breathe and go, what am I really feeling? Then you can really um, tap into what's really going on and, and respond accordingly. You know, you, we, we talked about this in an earlier show uh, of Swing Thoughts, um, Brought to you by TaylorMade Adidas Golf. 
the number one driver in golf. Um, you mentioned we were talking I earlier. That, by the way. I, <laughs> I know it sounds so that. cool. Um, <laughs> you had mentioned about you know sometimes, and we I think we had been talking about backing away from a shot. And you'll see, uh, I, I think better players do it because maybe we have a bit more confidence. I, I don't know. But I your buddies aren't going to say, hey, this isn't the U.S. Open. Right. But maybe that's not it. But the point is, in the moment, if you listen to your body, it feels uncomfortable with the way you're set up. And, and we had talked about this on the show, and we had said, you know, really, most guys, and you would point this out, most guys won't back it off because they're, they're afraid of some outside opinion. Right. That then prevents them from listening to themselves, their instinct, their body in that moment. And I don't mean just physical body, what your gut's telling you. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, responsible for a lot of what goes awry, I won't say wrong, but what goes awry in the average golfer's round is is your, and you've been right all along. I got to tell you, like I, I've learned a lot more now looking back on some of the things you've said because it resonates so much with the, what I'm reading now, which is, if you're, your body, you've said this before too, your body knows what to do. I have hit this winter alone, conservatively 10,000 chip shots. I'm not even kidding. You are OCD. Yes, sir. So when I'm out playing last week, when I was, I was away for a golf trip. I sort of said to myself over a few pitches and chips, you just, I know what to do. I, I, I've got to give myself the benefit of the doubt that I've done this, yes. this winter alone. 10,000 times and you know it made a huge difference that the the chip didn't always go close but at least I gave myself the benefit of the doubt which was a pretty big thing for me to learn yeah and what it reminds me of is a great saying that um, others have probably said it but I align it with Fred Shoemaker Mm -hmm. is the body never does a stupid thing right and you just think of of the wisdom that the body has and its abilities like my driveway in the the house I used to have in Rockwood had a bit of a slant to it. And on some slippery, freezing mornings, going down to get my globe and mail, I would lose my balance. But my body just in that instant is able to just calibrate of and just get me. And so I don't land on my butt. That's pretty freaking amazing what it can do. So on the golf course, when you're trying to settle over a shot and and something's going, eh, this isn't quite right. Just to, be, to move around, feel that the ground, your, your ground is telling, telling you something, the way you're reacting to it, the tilt, and you just tune into it. It's, it's amazing what can happen, but unfortunately, most of us go to this place of, well, I'm feeling this, so I remember this. I'll, I'll take the club more outside here and you rotate my forearm on the way back that, and I've got to make sure to remember to release the club on the way right, through right. And, and all you do is get tense mm-hmm. you're controlling something that shouldn't be controlled as opposed to just letting your body adapt feel it let her rip I'm telling you people this Tim O'Connor guy knows what he's talking about O'ConnorGolf.ca as uh, we usually mention off the top Tim's the uh, performance coach for uh, Club Link Academy at Glen Abbey you can uh, avail yourself of Tim's instruction, co-author of a bunch of books, just finishing up, uh, an, I guess, an addendum or an extra chapter for uh, the Moe Norman book. Well, the uh, I wrote his biography, The Feeling of Greatness, in 1995. Uh, we added a couple of new chapters in 2004 after he died. And then uh, Todd Graves, who's my partner in... Some, the Single Plane. Yeah, we wrote the book, The Single Plane uh, Swing, Play Better Golf the Moe Norman Way. We just thought, you know, Moe's been gone more than 10 years um, there's a lot of stories that we didn't get to 
particularly in the last 10 years of his life. So let's just, let's take another shot at it. So I've just finishing up um, in the last two months, uh, revising that book, um, particularly the, the beginning and the end and adding a ton of anecdotes. And why did we start going on the road of Mo Norman again? <laughs> I don't remember. Oh, because I was talking about, you know, because I, I brought up what you've been doing and oh, I said yeah, you've, yeah, you've yeah. been adding. The, listen, folks, I'm 56. He's 57. We're 113 years old. Don't expect us to remember what we just said. We lose our like, nouns. Like, that's re- hilarious, though. Like, I couldn't remember. I asked the question <laughs> 60 seconds ago. I still couldn't remember. Like, why didn't Why were we talking about So, Because you were finishing the book. We talked about it before we started the show yeah, today. Yeah. Um, what I think it would be a good show to do is get Graves in here. Absolutely. And just the two of you tell Mo stories. Like, I just sit back and be fascinated by it. Because there isn't a Canadian golfer, myself included, you know, that doesn't claim to have a personal experience of Mo. I mean, I have. It's like, you know, you know what the analogy is? It's like the first game at Exhibition Stadium for the Blue Jays. <laughs> was Everyone was there. If, if the number of Canadians that claim to have seen Mo Norman. And played with them. Yeah, played with them. It's more than the population of the, of the country. <laughs> but uh, you guys definitely know him. It would be great to have uh, that conversation. And before we wrap up here. Um. I don't think we've done a show for a couple of weeks. And in the, the two weeks that have taken uh, place since, uh, what am I trying to say? In the two weeks since we recorded, uh, Craig Marseille Yeah. And uh, he was just a, you want to talk about a, a great guy, great player, great person. And Craig was the 19, I'm going to say 89 or 88 club champion at the National. I joined in 1990 and he had just turned pro. Craig turned pro later in life. He had been uh, just a guy, a regular job. I don't think he turned pro until he was a pro. If I was 30, he would have been 31. He was a couple years older than me. So pretty late in life. But very few people got more out of their golf games than Craig Marseille. He played the Canadian Tour. He played on the PGA Tour. Qualified for the Champions Tour. My biggest Craig thrill. uh, One of them, I should say, was uh, watching the 1994 and 1995 U.S. Open. And this was before I had a PVR. I put a VCR, but I didn't have any tape in it. I was watching <laughs> Thursday round coverage. And there was Marseille who had qualified for the U.S. Open. There was this guy that I knew, and his name was on the leaderboard because he birdied like the second hole. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a camera. I didn't oh, yeah. have a smartphone. It was, But I was freaking out, thinking, oh, my God, Marseille's on the first page of the leaderboard. But uh, I saw him for the last time last fall. Uh, we have an annual dinner at the National, and he was there. And that was, uh, I had played with him the previous year, about a month or two after he had his diagnosis with a brain tumor. Wow. But I'll tell you what, there, was a, there weren't a lot of better guys uh, to know, period, than Craig. And uh, a great guy to, to play golf with. But I, I want to talk about, just quickly, just to, re- to, just to recap what I said. He wasn't a great ball striker. He wasn't a very, he didn't hit it very long. By pro standards, not long at all. But you want to talk about a guy with a great short game and a great putter and the best attitude of, of anyone I ever played with. So that's Craig Mercer. Anyways, you know, he's dead now and uh, that's kind of crappy. Yeah, yeah. I knew a lot of people, uh, I know a lot of the people around the national, guys like uh, Tom Jackson, Jeff Hay, they all, uh, uh, well, they're missing their good friend. And you know what? You look on Facebook and, and all the people, you know, from Foley to, you know, you know, guys, you know, Martin Chuck, people that have been on our show, just all Brian McCann was uh, a really, really close friend, had traveled. Brian would have been probably 21 or two 
when Craig was 31 or two, and they played the tour together for a lot of years. And uh, that was just too bad because, like I said, he was just a great guy. And, you know, a lot of people, when they die, I've noticed that as you get older, you know, you, 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 uh, you always say sort of the similar things. But in this particular case, they're true. What else? Uh, is that enough show, you think? I think it's um, enough show. You know what, revive Jason Day? I mean, oh my God, what a what a tear he's on. It'll be amazing to see how he does uh, in the Masters. Yeah, why don't we quickly talk. Uh, next week we're going to do, we were just talking about it before we recorded today, about what we're going to do for our Masters show. We're thinking of getting kind of a bunch of guys in just to kind of a round, round table. Timmy's been there seven times. I've been there once. Timmy's covered it. We might get some other broadcasters or whenever some golfers just to talk about the Masters. What about, uh, you know, we really don't do this on the show, but so you like Jason Day this year? Well, there'll be I, someone else. Will probably, I mean, you he's been know. on such a tear, and there's such a high level of focus, and and it has it really wears on you. Mm-hmm. Whether he can maintain that, I don't know. He did have a tweaky back. Uh, he played through it, uh, and really, no one is playing with more confidence than him right now. Um, I don't know. It's I like Rory. There, Rory. He's he's got the the ball flight certainly for Augusta, hits it long, hits it high, mm-hmm. can hold it in those greens. And I really think that he came to terms with Augusta. Uh, he still hasn't won there. Um, he had the big implosion, mm-hmm. uh, the 80. Shot the, 80 in the last round that right. few years ago. So uh, he, he he's one of those guys who rises to the big moments when, uh, and you know, he, he did, uh, he came in, well, he was in the consolation round in the, in the match play. So he's been playing pretty decent. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I would I I think Rory's uh, got a good shot at it. Um, who else? Spieth, you think he's uh, going to be back in form? He, you know, he's a uh, funny. He, not, uh, he's not hitting all cylinders. Yeah, but he has the ability. I think yeah. you know to kind of work through it. Uh, I like. Uh, you know, it's a funny place because you know Bubba Watson's won it oh, twice. Yeah. Uh, Greg Norman's never won it. Um, you know, Mike Weir's one. And just quickly, I, I checked the scores in this week's tournament, which is... Shell. Shell. It's Houston Open. Shell Houston Open, yeah. And, uh, you know, I always... It's sad, but now when I'm looking to see if Weir's playing, <laughs> oh, no. I just go to my PGA Tour app and I go to the 110s, 115, and, and sure enough, there was Mike. You know, he had like a four-over round uh, in the first round. I think it was something like that. And then ha- uh, in the front nine of his second round, he was two under, so he was a couple away from the cut. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe he'll bring it back and ended up shooting a million. And I bet you if you asked him, he would go, I'm close. I'm close. Maybe. You know? I-, I was going to ask you that. Maybe we credit, can... to, credit to Mike Weir for just keep going. He, you know, he doesn't need to do it, um, but he just... He's keep at it. So well, how much uh, longer? I guess. What, how mu- I was asking this to my buddy Jamie Cavanaugh. I said, "How much? How many more sponsors exemption slash money list exemption oh, wow. medical? I don't know how much longer he's got on there. I mean, he's always pardon me, going to play the Masters, obviously, but uh, yeah, I don't know. My, it's a uh, funny PGA thing. Tour details like that. Well, you know, they like. I think last year he was playing on. There's uh, there's several exemptions medical. Uh, top 50 uh, money winning list gives you a year. Right. Uh, sponsors exemptions, mass, you know, past masters champion. But he's got to be mid 40s now, doesn't he? Or is he his? I don't know. We, don't we should know. probably know. We should know that. I don't know. Do, should nerds, we? Really? Yeah. Mike Weir. I'm, as golf nerds, do I need to look this up? 47? Uh, okay, let's go. Mike Weir, age. Age. I went net worth. That'd be cool. Should we play music? 45 though? years old. Yeah, I was close. 
I said 45, mid 40s. I said 47. Okay. So. You win then. <laughs> uh, well, anyway. Mike, you know, I'm. I'm hoping that uh, it'll go well for him. It keeps it going, and then when he gets on the Champions Tour, he can, um, you know, enjoy that mulligan. That sure. So many other players tear have. it up. Yeah. Taylor made Adidas Golf, the number one driver in golf. Do you have a, an M1 yet? No, I'm Dude, waiting. Dude, you got to get on. I'm waiting for it. I'm telling you, I I played in Greensboro last week, three or four rounds. I was like, okay, I was I, I was almost like a, I felt like I was at training camp. First three or four rounds, I I could just feel my swing speed, not the you know not swinging fast, but my swing speed wasn't quite up there. I could tell by where my drives were. But the last sort of 27, 36 holes, I could just feel like the gear come up a yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm telling you, you know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, it was the M1. And we're not, I'm not just saying this because they're our sponsor, but because I've had one for almost a year or half a year. It is the, if the if there's one club that can make a huge difference in, in, in your game, that club will. Wow. I'm looking forward to it. But uh, I was also thinking, did Bobby Goldsboro sing about Greensboro? He should have. Really, he should have, Tim. <laughs> okay, thank you. You can or subs- the little green. Well, just leave that alone. All right. Saturday morning and confusion. It never rains in Houston. Do you know that? That's a Saturday morning confusion. That's the guy. Oh yeah. It's a Saturday morning confusion. Okay, we got to go. Uh, swing thoughts. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and we'll see you next week.